Thanks for downloading Development Drums. My name is Owen Barder and our topic today is the data revolution. I'm joined by two people who've thought more about this than anyone else. Claire Malamid, the Director for Growth, Poverty and Inequality at ODI, um, who was on a previous, I think, episode 24 of Development Drums. Claire, welcome back. Nice to be back. And Amanda Glassman, the Director for Global Health Policy and a Senior Fellow at the Centre for Global Development. Amanda, welcome to Development Drums. Thank you, Owen. So let's start by figuring out what we mean by a data revolution. And um, Claire, you've just hosted a two-day conference on it, and you've been writing about it. What, what do we mean by a data revolution? Where did this idea come from? Well, the idea came from a small paragraph, a sentence really, in the report um, issued just over a year ago by the United Nations High-Level Panel on the post-2015 development agenda, a group of the great and the good who were assembled to advise the Secretary-General on what the next development agenda after the Millennium Development Goals might look like. And they, in common with many others over the years, have been increasingly frustrated at the fact that we don't really know what's going on in many areas of development because the data is very poor. And so inserted into the panel a plea for a data revolution. And I think, you know, this idea has just really taken off and everyone's been talking about it since. It shows how much demand there was. This has probably been the bit of the panel's report that's had the most interest and the most positive reception around the world. So what do people think it means? Well, what part of the beauty of it and the reason why it has become so popular so quickly is that it means different things to different people. And in some ways that's led to a kind of explosion of ideas, which is a really positive, if slightly chaotic thing. So for people who are interested in big data and the kind of whole open new world of data which is opening up before our eyes, it means that. It means bringing that more into the mainstream of measurement and making it more useful to policy. For people who are interested in the sort of hard work of building up capacity at the local level within country governments, for example, that's what it means. Training more statisticians, getting computer systems to work properly... And all points between, really. So I was also at that meeting, and uh, I think over time people kept talking about a couple of common concepts, which which is great because there there seemed to be some coalescing towards a single definition. One is more data, better data, disaggregated data, frequent data. So this idea that you would have kind of an annual tracking of progress at a level that's relevant to decision makers that it's usable data, but that it's also used. So it's an enormously ambitious idea and statement that might be a longer-term goal. Aspirational, for sure. So Amanda, you've just produced a report from a working group about data for African development. What was the problem that your working group was trying to solve? Mm-hmm. Well, when we started, the data revolution as a concept hadn't didn't yet exist. We were really concerned with the lack of accurate data that was coming from sub-Saharan Africa. Most people are familiar, for example, with um, the recent rebasing of GDP estimates in Nigeria and Ghana, and the differences were huge. It was like a 90% difference in the GDP estimate for Nigeria. So that has huge implications um, for domestic policy. It has implications for the research that we do, what we know about relationships between different kinds of macroeconomic aggregates and well-being. So people, I think people were pretty shocked by that. Um, 
And that was reinforced by a book that came out from Morton Jervin. It was called Poor Numbers. Uh, that got a lot of attention. So I think that, that was sort of why we started to work in it. Why are we seeing such problems in statistical systems in, in Africa? And what we found is um, sort of limited incentives to produce accurate data in systems as they are now, insufficient and unpredictable funding for national statistical systems, sometimes incentives to actually misreport data, either from donors or from budget systems within country, um, a tendency to respond to the money that was available and donor priorities rather than sticking to what would make sense from a government standpoint in terms of priorities, and then very low access and usability of data. So someone in our meeting today, I think, put it really well. NSOs for a long time, when national statistical offices thought of themselves as like table and spreadsheet producers, not as producing data that's supposed to be used by people. So that's the problem, and the data revolution is some combination of um, more, better data, perhaps using new techniques, but perhaps investing in existing systems. That's that's the thing that we're... I mean, so why is that, why would this be a revolution as opposed to just business as usual in terms of building up the capacity of national institutions across the developing world to do the things they should be doing? I think one doesn't want to get too hung up about the precise definition of this word revolution. The phrase, you know, was used in the panel and part of the, is the drama of the word that has got so much political attention and traction behind it. So in some senses it's already filled its, fulfilled its purpose just by doing that. If the, if the wording had been, you know, some improvements in the quality of data <laughs> X, Y and Z, we probably wouldn't be sitting here today. Wow. So I think, you know, it's partly a sort of mobilising device by heightening the kind of drama of the, and the level of ambition. I mean, there is a sense that there are two possible revolutions, one around open, run, one around open data and the extent to which data, there's a kind of j- jump which is possible in the availability of data and the use of data by different groups. And the second is a potential revolution through big data, and suddenly, you know, suddenly the world, the universe of data that we're used to seeing, which is the kind of official data and statistics, looks very, very tiny when put next to all the mobile phone calls in the world, all the credit card transactions, you know, all the sort of world of big data. So let's get to why this is important. Um, you know, one way of thinking about this is this is a competing claim for scarce resources. You know, these are the data people or the statistics people who, like the health people and the education people and the water people, want their share of the aid pie or the government resources pie. And this is, you know, you, if, if, this, if any of those groups were putting their, their case, we would say, well, let's see your cost-effectiveness numbers. Let's understand what the benefit is and understand what the costs are and see if it stacks up compared to alternative uses for the money. So... You know, if you had a billion dollars and you could spend it on this, or you could spend it on, say, childhood vaccination, which which of those would you do? What's the compa- What's the reason why we need to spend a lot of money and effort on data, Amanda? Well, okay. The first, I think, is an existential point. If a tree falls in the wood and no one's around to hear it, does it make a sound? I mean, for many areas, the data we have is so inaccurate and so outdated that it's very difficult to even know if government spending or donor spending is having an effect on the things that we expect it to have an impact on. So I think that's one good reason. 
Second, most development projects are already spending some share of their resources on monitoring and evaluation. We've seen an explosion in bespoke household surveys as part of impact evaluations, as part of uh, donor tracking, as part of government programs. That's very positive. I mean, we at CGD have been pushing that. But at the same time, how can we be funding these bespoke surveys in huge amounts while we neglect basic things like the sampling frame on which those household surveys have to be based or the censuses or the basic vital statistics that tell us how many people are born and what people die of. So it seems to me that maybe it's not that we need a lot more money, but it's that we need to focus on the right ways to get to the measures and accountability that are going to make the whole system function better. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that. I would add sort of two things, really. One is a political point that we know the least about the people who are sort of the most marginalised and the least important. So I think it may be that there's a set of unknowns out, unknowns out there. You know, we just don't know, for example, you know, a, there's huge parts of the population of some of the poorest countries. We, never, we don't know when they're born. We don't know when they die. We don't know what they die of. We're just kind of flying blind on a whole range of things, which are the things which primarily are going to affect the poorest people. So I think there's a sort of political point there just about kind of fairness. So, the, so there's an equity argument, which is the one you've just mm. made, Claire, which is that if, if we had more information, especially about marginalised people, um, or women, for example, in some circumstances, that we would do a better job of providing them with services and so on. There's a, an efficiency argument, which is if you're going to make choices about the allocation of, of services, you better do that on reasonable information. And there's another efficiency argument to do with government interventions and aid programs, which is you are better able to see whether the things you're trying to make a difference to are changing in the way you expect. Okay, so, so there are some possible benefits here, but how sure are we that those benefits are big enough and, you know, I think a lot of people worry that we'd have more data and no one would pay any attention because the problems are not that we don't know, the problems are political or something else anyway. So it, the, how does data get through that? Um, there's a couple of papers that try and draw a connection between the quality of statistics and governance and even private investment. There's a paper by the IMF that seems to show that as the quality of official statistics on economic activity improve, that increases investor trust and might actually increase the appetite of investors to act in those countries. And then there's a paper, these are associations, of course, we don't know which came first. Was it the growth or was it the quality of statistics? Mm. But obviously these things are all good things that go together. But I also think we do have to hold up our hands and admit that there is a lot that we don't know in answering that question. You know, and in a sense, one of the conclusions that came out of the meeting today was that, you know, while it's very nice to have a lot of people in the room who care very much about data, if you're going to reach beyond that group we have to make a much more effective case about the value of investing in data over and above vaccinations or roads or anything else. Mm -hmm. And also for ourselves, in order to be able to do that effectively, we have to know, you know, where that stops and where we have, you know, roughly enough data. Mm -hmm. We should actually start putting it into roads and vaccinations. And I think there is a research, you know, there is a research project there around, you know, what is the cost effectiveness of data? What are the cost benefit ratios of different types of investment in different types of data? What is the human outcome impact in terms of how can you measure the sort of fact, you know, can you in some hand, in some way measure the impact on people's lives of 
trying to run a health system with or without good data, for example. Mm -hmm. There's this new literature on the value of information, which tries to quantify the benefits from, well, the costs associated with collecting new kinds of data and making it into information, and then the benefits that you would get in terms of the policy actions that you could take as a result um, which is interesting, but it's you know literally a couple books or something. But we don't yet have a number to put to it. I mean, one imagines that this is relatively cheap in the grand scheme of things, and you wouldn't need a very big percentage improvement in the efficiency of decision-making for it to pay back and some. But it'd be quite good to see those numbers yeah. written down somewhere. But not all of it is about new money anyway. Mm-hmm. Or some of it is really just about you know making sure that, for example, we have a standard form of household survey so that where every donor does their individual survey for the evaluation, which they're doing already, Mm -hmm. half of that survey is framed in a way that means that you can add up the surveys that are done by DFID and USAID and Save the Children and Oxfam and turn them into a single data set. And that doesn't cost hardly anything. It's really just about efficiency. Let's come in a second to this question of what are the things that donors can do, international institutions can do, broadly we in in the industrialised world should be doing differently to support the data revolution. But before that, let's look at the broader question of what's happening to national statistical offices and services in developing countries. Because, Amanda, your report finds that uh, there is insufficient investment and improvement in many countries in the collection of basic statistics. And So tell me what... Uh, what you found there and what your set of recommendations is for for improving the basic statistical capacity of the developing world. Okay, well, I should say that this working group we undertook together with the African Population Health and Research Center, because as you know, CGD is traditionally focused on international agencies and the donors. So it was great to partner with uh, an organization in Africa that has more of a policymaker focus in country, which is a little bit outside of our usual domain. Um, But what did we look at? I mean, we looked at um, the extent to which uh, financial incentives, either through donor payments or budget, affected the accuracy of statistics um, and how some high-level indicators were vulnerable to political influence. Uh, And this was echoed, I think, by the meeting that we just had where someone said, you know, if the Minister of Finance calls the head of statistics and says, change the consumer price index, they do. You know, the inflation rate, growth rate, number of people living in poverty, these are all very sensitive statistics. And so one of our recommendations was to try and support an evolution towards uh, NSOs that are functionally independent and able to generate unbiased estimates and also to have a civil society, maybe a window or something that could nurture these kind of think tanks or intermediary groups locally to be able to do a check on those headline statistics um, and make a stink if, if something seems really bad. Because as, you, as we know, you know, like the IMF, they've pointed out to me that they did footnote when Argentina's inflation rate started to look funny. They footnoted it in their report, but they didn't make a stink about it until The Economist wrote about it and then, okay. Um, so it's you know, making that cycle work a little bit faster. Um, the other issue is around... Um, the administrative data, because in most developed countries, we're evolving away from like household surveys and big population censuses to much better administrative systems that provide the routine, daily, disaggregated data that we are all dreaming of as part of the data revolution. So to give an example, you mean that instead of sampling whether children are in school by going around asking households, you would collect that data from school 
uh, registers. Exactly. Exactly. Or what do I know about utilization of healthcare? Um, I don't ask you in the household survey, they ask you, were you sick last week? Uh, and if you were sick enough, did you go? That's what we know from a household survey. Whereas every single clinic increasingly is going to know what did I come in for? What was I sick from? What prescription medicine did I get? And you can imagine the power of that information to change how you spend on healthcare. So one of the things that was interesting in the report was that there was this divergence between survey data and administrative data. Yeah. So, I mean, many years of neglect of administrative data and these perverse incentives have led us to a situation where the administrative data is not very useful at the moment. Just explain about the perverse incentives, because I'm not sure uh, listeners will have understood exactly what the problem there is. Yeah, so this is some research undertaken with Justin Sandifer, who's a colleague of ours at CGD, and... Um, we looked at, in, in one paper, we're looking at education and health, and then he has some other papers that look at agricultural yield and also the consumer price index. And he's comparing administrative data, which is sort of the data that's passed on to the international organizations uh, as school enrollment data or vaccination rates or ag productivity, and then he checked them against household surveys, and we looked at that um, and looked at health. So what you find are these big discrepancies in terms of trends. So in Kenya, for example, when they started, they switched from a budget that was input-based to a budget that rewarded subnational entities based on the number of kids enrolled in school. And what you found is that enrollment went straight up, and it looks like they've met the MDG. But if you look at the survey-based estimates, it's absolutely flat. So that's a huge... Uh, distortion, let's say, in our understanding about what's actually going on. So it looks like the region, regional bits of government are reporting rising number of school kids because that way they get more money from the central government. Exactly. But, though, but when you ask the households, you don't find that there are more kids in school. So exactly. you get this divergence between the two. Okay. Yeah. So, and we see something similar, you know, trying to net out all the other things that might be going on that would affect those estimates, we're still seeing those things. And it's the same, we're also seeing overreported vaccination rates during the period when the Gavi Alliance was paying an additional amount of money per vaccinated child. You see kind of a flat trend. Um, well, you see misreporting before and after those incentives were in place, but you just see a larger misreport when the incentives come into play. So, so far, this sounds a bit like a problem statement, right? Which is yeah. there's political interference in statistics, there's underinvestment in, in the core statistical functions, mm -hmm. administrative data is being distorted and misreported. You know, all those sound like compelling problems. What is it that we um, or somebody should do about that to yeah. make that better? Yeah. So, I mean, I think underinvestment is one, underinvestment and lack of attention to administrative data is one big issue. Um, so the idea is we should, we should really focus on that. We should focus on national statistics offices as a kind of fact checker of the line ministries, or at least a mutual support society. In South Africa, for example, they're placing statisticians inside the line ministries to try and help them in strengthening the administrative systems. The other thing we could think about is donors... Um, is well let me also back up i think that civil society oversight of the administrative data is also a good idea so these kind of report card efforts um citizen feedback checks on local level data are also useful to improve admin data use the household surveys as we did to try and check whether these estimates are close to each other and then in terms of a funding approach because we've we found that there's low funding there's a regular funding and it's very tied to products so the idea 
that we suggest in the report is a compact for data that would encompass the entire statistical system, not just the National Statistical Office, that can involve CSOs, private sector, donors, government, in agreeing on sort of mutual goals for better data, you know, with certain attributes of accuracy and openness and timeliness, and then maybe paying out a portion of that money against progress in that data. But this feels to me like a kind of somewhat rebadged version of a traditional you know, technical cooperation program where you have some donor... You're, I mean, you're basically saying donors should spend more money on statistics offices and they should have some kind of agreement about the outputs they're going to get oh, from how, it. How and, can you say that, Owen? No, okay. This is cash on delivery. Oh, well, it's a good. public uh, statement, uh, mutual accountability, own funding, flexible funding, but against progress on goals with some you know, watchdogging happening by society and citizens as a whole. So it's not just the same old thing. Claire, cash on delivery for national statistical offices, is that, is that what is going to take the trick? I think that if that was, not that that's necessarily a bad idea, but if that was what it was, then I think a lot of people, if that was all it was, and I'm not saying it's, that's a bad idea in itself, but if that was the entirety of what happened as a result of all of this mm-hmm. excitement, I think people would feel a little bit shortchanged, because that isn't all it is. Um, that's one of the sort of core parts of the system that needs to be fixed. But I think that the aspiration of the data revolution, as it, you know, the clues in the name really, go quite a long way beyond that. Um, I think the difficulty with this is that really it's a it's a sort of umbrella term into which we're throwing a whole number of different things. Some of which, as you say, are not news. We've been doing and thinking about for quite a long time. And then at the other extreme, some of which we don't really know what they are yet. So some of it we're sort of making up as we go along. You know, we're exploring, there are various projects um, on the go to explore the potential of big data, for example. Mm-hmm. So there have been some fantastically interesting experiments with using mobile phone data in Cote d'Ivoire to track poverty, to do almost effective, almost kind of real-time poverty monitoring using mobile phone top-ups as a proxy for income. Um doing and um, tracking the movements of phone users through the day to track um, you know people's movements around cities and use that as an input into developing public transport you know there's been a fantastically interesting the um, something there's been the thing also about tracking kind of international calls and using that to estimate the whereabouts of refugee populations who you have absolutely no other way of counting no one's even there um, you know there's some fascinating experiments going on but, you know, we don't actually kind of know what that universe is going to be yet. We certainly couldn't draw up a plan for what different parts of the international system could do to support the use of big data in development because we don't even know, you know, any, how any part of that is going to work out. But it's clear there's something there and it's going to be very important and very exciting. So I think the data revolution is split between more of the things that are going on anyway and just keeping our eyes open and finding a facility to kind of make sure we're pulling in to the sort of useful parts of the system all of the experiments that are going on as they happen. And it may be that we don't see any kind of system-type results from some of this for 10, 20 years. One other idea that came out during the meeting this week is this idea that um, our own personal data should not be treated as an extractive industry. I love that terminology. So this... And this is more something that would affect, I mean, it affects all of us that have a cell phone, you know, but should we, 
if we involve the Facebooks and Googles of the world or the Vodafones, you know, is it the case that we'd like them to agree to a standard for data disclosure and use? Um, if it's the case that the UN is going to engage on these efforts, should we not hold them to some standard of data disclosure um, and reporting? So, you know, it's not just uh, someone else's problem. It's our, our own problem and it's firms' problems. And so I think I agree it's a much larger issue than, than what we've been talking about. So I am, we are going to come to our, our end of the problem as in the, the industrialized world's end of the problem. But just just um, on this question of building capacity and, and how we um, get more, uh, better, more timely, um, more disaggregated information in the developing world, I, uh, the story of the revolution part, the, the shiny new bits, which are very attractive and may solve a lot of problems, it, it seems to me that there are two potential worries about that if we forget about the basic part. So one is there's nothing to calibrate them against, right? You don't know if your mobile phone data is telling you about poverty if you don't, if you don't have some way to calibrate it against actual poverty data. You, you don't know what it's telling you. So that seems to be a reason why you would want to be doing both. And the other problem we have is that it might detract from doing the more um, basic investment in national NSO organizations that, that funders, you know, I could imagine donors and foundations being interested in mobile phone stuff and satellite imagery and yada yada, but it's quite hard to get people to pay the, the salaries of statisticians in a national statistical office. So is there a danger, is there actually a tension between these two objectives? How do, how, do you, how do you connect them and bring them together if they're both part of the data revolution? I think certainly there's a hypothetical danger. You know, those, it may turn out, as you suggest, and there is a finite amount of money, and if it all goes to one place rather than the other, then clearly that's a danger. I have to say, in the, nothing's actually happened yet, so it's hard to know, but in the discussions that we've been having... I felt very strongly that both ends of that deal are kind of really being quite effective at making their voices heard. If anything, you know, I would say probably it's the official side of the system which has got itself organised first and is kind of lobbying hardest and making its voice heard. And if anything, we're underrepresenting the kind of potential of, of big data in the conversation because they're not people who are usually in these rooms and know how to be necessarily kind of interested or knowledgeable about engaging in these rather sort of stuffy bureaucratic events so I completely see that's a hypothetical danger and it may go that way but I'm not seeing it now yeah I'd, I'd agree with that assessment I I am a little worried about the shiny but maybe that's because I'm more exposed to shiny in my current job but just we do know that so little of aid is going to the official statistics sector so and and we know that the characteristics of that money is is are terrible for trying to achieve the goals that we'd like to achieve. So I, I don't think there's any incompatibility between these things. And I think certainly for for things like um, environmental statistics, we want the new and shiny. You know, I let the the satellite imagery of trees uh, that can be used to track deforestation is really important, and it's not going to be accomplished by the national statistical system. So I, I really do think it's about taking a more integral view to the potential for new technologies and big data and all that to work.
You're listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Barter, and my guests today are my colleague Amanda Glassman from the Centre for Global Development and Claire Malamed from ODI. We're going to turn now to this uh, question that has been rumbling underneath about what it is that donors should be doing differently, what it is that international organisations should be doing differently. Um, and let's start with the extent to which we're part of the problem. Let's, let's get the problem statement out. And Amanda, you were saying some things about this earlier. What is it that, uh, to what extent are, are donors and international organisations um, contributing to this problem? Yeah. Well, on the one hand, the money that we're giving directly to statistical activities is quite fragmented and focused on specific products, usually household surveys, because they're an easy way to get the data that donors are increasingly needing. And that's connected to the second issue, which is that the results-based aid movement is a great success. I think both of us have talked a lot about how great it is to link money to results and measure results better and do fancy impact evaluations. But the problem with that uh, has been, or at least it seems that there's been more money put towards those things than to building the basic systems, the administrative data, the basic economic statistics. Um, So I think now the pendulum is swinging. Hopefully it doesn't swing too far in the other direction um, to to sort of correct this behavior. And and there's also an issue around, this is the usual uh, aid effectiveness discussion of multiple surveys on the same thing. Uh, Food security is one of the main examples. So the LSMS uh, that the World Bank runs includes uh, the Living Standards and Measurement Surveys, um, now funded by the Gates Foundation through the World Bank, has an ag productivity component. There's the Feed the Future survey. Um, there's administrative data systems. Sometimes there's a set of special surveys. If you get the idea, we have like a lot of different surveys, non-standard approaches, that could be fixed, although there's been progress. But uh, but have, why is it bad to have lots of surveys? Well, I mean, it's That's given the limited right? capacity of statistical offices and given that they respond very much to the incentives associated with doing field work because they're quite poorly paid, the per diems associated with field work are higher than salary. So you have a lot of unnecessary field work going on to collect basically the same information, sometimes in the same year, in a non-comparable way. Right. That is of limited utility, and it also confuses people. So it would be better if that was core funding for the organizations to collect the information once at a, at, in a sensible way. Exactly. Okay, so donors are funding lots of fragmented uh, bits of field work and unnecessary duplication, and also creating distortions, particularly in administrative data, that means that data are less useful. What about international institutions and their, the contribution they're making or not making to providing data that other people can use and so on? I think that one of the reasons why it's good that we're, it's particularly good that we're having this conversation in, you know, as part of the post-2015 new goals conversation is that to some extent the Millennium Development Goals have also provided a bit of a a kind of poor incentive around data because clearly they've sort of elevated the status of certain specific indicators over others which perhaps aren't necessarily the ones that governments would have chosen or were useful to particular governments at particular times because of the importance they have for national monitoring and they've also increased the importance of being seen to have a kind of national average for your indicator rather than necessarily the kind of disaggregated 
data that would be useful. So insofar as the monitoring system for the MDGs have driven donor support to data and things in order to help governments to produce that, there's also been a kind of missed opportunity for making that also work for national level decision making. And that was a conversation that we weren't having in the late 90s as the MDG architecture was being set up, but we definitely are having now. So hopefully the impact of that particular global system on creating some of these slightly wonky incentives, at least we won't be repeating that mistake again. Mm-hmm. Something else that came out in this meeting was um, someone from IATI was there and saying... That's the International Aid Transparency Initiative. That's right. And uh, he was saying, you know, the OECD and the UN don't define East Africa the same way. Right. And then they publish statistics... And then there's no way to compare them or analyze them. So that's why I love the idea of uh, mutual accountability, that all organizations should commit to some kind of coalescing around global standards for the presentation of data, for the cataloging of data. All of that will help with use. And and actually just moving to open data would make a big difference. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, the same person who was at your meeting uh, from uh, the International Aid Transparency Initiative tweeted the other day that he couldn't get hold of data uh, that's published by the UN um, on um, a, a particular data series without paying for it, right? And of course, yeah. we've already paid for this information, we've paid for it to be collected, and here is a researcher wanting to use it for some, presumably for some public good and can't because uh, mm-hmm. it's only available behind a paywall. So there's also a question of whether we can unlock yeah. mm-hmm. the data that, uh, that international bodies hold and collect. And I mean, there is obviously a particular urgency and kind of moral case there to be made about data which is paid for from public funds and you know as you say you don't want to pay for it twice I think increasingly there is also an issue it's like a different issue around data which is created in the private sector I mean you know and one has you know examples like the huge volumes of incredibly useful data that are collected by Gallup for example on well-being really that's how we know that's the kind of gold standard for rigorous research on global on well-being but a lot of it you can't get hold of because it's paid for. Clearly, it's a private company. They have to make their money somehow. But, you know, there's a big question that there's a huge potentially thing there which would be of enormous public value, which we can't get at. Increasingly, you know, if big data does prove to be useful, a lot of that data is held in in the private sector. And I think there's going to be perhaps a sort of second generation of open data is going to have to be about thinking much more about the kind of economic issues and the, the um, public interest issues around how to get access to more of that private sector data as well. Can I just pause on this issue about lack of donor interest? Um, it, it seems to me probable, but tell me if this is right or not, that many ministers or um, uh, people who run philanthropic foundations would much rather spend money on a school or a vaccination than they would on a, a bunch of statisticians. It's not a very photogenic uh, investment, and it's hard to explain to your stakeholders uh, why you're paying for bureaucrats in a developing country. Is that, uh, is, is that fair, or is that, uh, are they in fact silently doing the work of saints behind the scenes and funding this boring-sounding thing? I don't think they are as much as they could be. I mean, I suspect maybe they're getting a bit of a bad press here and they may be doing more than we think they are. And it may be that the the sort of governments that have managed to use the system effectively have managed to 
for example, use some of the, you know, monitoring and evaluation resources or the kind of some aspects of the results-based framework to invest in those core functions. But I also, I mean, following on from that, I also think that part of the case for better data might be to not really talk about data at all, but to talk about something like if you want to build an effective education system and put your schools in the right places and have lots of well-educated, happy, motivated children, you kind of need to know where the children live and how old they are in order to be able to do that effectively. So the argument actually for some audiences may actually be much more effectively made to not really talk about data very much, but to talk about outcomes for people. I mean, I think it's important probably to recognize that... um, organizations like the Hewlett Foundation, from whom we also receive funding, have traditionally been interested in the area of demography and population and the think tank initiative, which tries to use data to influence policy. Um, The Gates Foundation is one of the biggest funders now of the Living Standards and Measurement Surveys through the World Bank. So definitely there's interest, but the question is whether we there's um, appetite to invest more substantially in country data systems. I should also mention DFID. Actually, DFID has a very good track record on statistical capacity building, but again, very focused on household surveys. So I guess the, the next step is really to go beyond the household survey as a way to support statistics in, in countries. And on this, on the, at the sexy end of the spectrum, the big data, the, the cell phones and the satellites and so on, are there things that donors or international organisations should be doing now to um, make maximum value of that? Is that stuff that will happen through the private sector and you know, through, um, uh, through the tech community and the best thing donors can do is keep out of it, or is there some um, is there some are there some global public goods here that donors should be investing in, or what's what's this, what should donors' engagement be in that? I think Claire's pointed out how important experimentation is at this point, and understanding whether using a mobile phone to to collect a sample uh, on some piece of information actually works. Can you get a representative sample from cell phones? Um, So I think the donor role could be experimentation and evaluation so that we can understand if these new techniques actually have promise, whether they're more cost-effective versus the existing one. So do we have to do a census, a huge every 10-year census, or could we, you know, have a really souped-up civil registration vital statistics system that essentially substitutes for that once every 10 years, $40 million investment? So I think these are the kinds of things that donors are really well suited to fund. I also think that there's a role in just kind of finding out what's going on out there for a sort of what, again, is a fairly cheap thing, but somebody has to do it. And there's a lot of experimentation going on in the private sector and some of it very, very localised, just based around, you know, small startups in different countries creating apps and seeing what happens. And a lot of that information will take decades to sort of percolate through the system unless somebody goes out and looks for it and brings it back together and assembles it in a way which is useful to other people who are having sort of tackling the same problems and I think that's quite a useful role that a donor or a foundation could play. So let's um, finish up by drawing together the threads. I know at your meeting you came up with an action plan um, and in this conversation, um, Amanda's talked, for example, about the, the compact 
as an important way to invest in basic systems. We've just talked about the need for lesson learning on the on the shiny new stuff. What are the what is it that you would like to see happen next, and how will that feed in, for example, to the post twenty fifteen framework? Let's start with Claire. The motivation for having this meeting was very much the sense that there is a political opportunity now, a moment. This idea of the data revolution has galvanised a lot of talk, everyone's very excited, but as we know, people have short attention spans and in a year or two, some other phrase will be the thing that everyone's talking about and nobody will care about data anymore. So I think the urgent job now is to think about one or two sort of quite specific actions, political deliverables, ways to lock some of this into the system so that when everyone's attention inevitably turns to something else, we set something in motion which can be the the kind of long-term impact of this flurry of excitement and interest. And you know, this various ideas were floated um, at the meeting today. Some, of, you know, a lot of which sort of caught a lot of attention and need a bit of sort of thinking through. You know, whether there's a need for a sort of dedicated funding instrument facility of some kind to galvanise more resources and make sure they're spent in a certain way, which provides the right incentives for the right combination of core investment and innovation. Um, and not forgetting about the sort of needs of the users and, and accountability and open data and so on, so it's a sort of funding thing. I think there's a way, again, in which one can use the opportunity of having new goals and needing to create a baseline around that to, in a sense, pick up some of the campaigning energy around creating new goals and really hoping that we can kind of turn that after the goals are agreed, we can turn that into a similar level of energy and excitement around creating all kinds of information, citizen-generated data, um, you know, information about people's views and opinions, as well as the the sort of formal um, household survey and census and administrative data that will form the core of the monitoring framework. So I think there is a big political opportunity now, and certain urgency to it, because it won't be around forever, and really the focus of the meeting to, and that we've had over the last couple of days has been of trying to really get people to switch people's attention away from defining the data revolution to making it a revolution through a series of specific actions. So we're log-framing the data revolution, Amanda. Oh, I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> You're too hard. No. <laughs> I, well, I mean, one other idea that came up, and, and this is more evolution than revolution, but it, it, it goes with the ideas, is that there is a lot of existing data out there that isn't linked together, that isn't usable. So there's some quick wins that we can do to put together some form of a baseline hopefully for a simplified set of SDGs that would come out of the intergovernmental negotiation process. But, you know, the mapping of service delivery indicators that the World Bank has undertaken lately is a really good example of the ways you can make existing data a lot more relevant. Um, So just taking advantage of that uh, in the short term is a good idea because I think we need to show something cool pretty soon. (laughs) The other idea is that some, some people are talking about being data radicals. And maybe putting out a manifesto that would call on not just the governments, but the UN, uh, the donors, the foundations. Put out your data. If you paid for data, put it in the public domain. Put it in a form that people can use. Mm -hmm. And I think really we're talking at two levels. At the moment, there's a huge amount that the kind of broad technical academic 
NGO community can just get on with some mm-hmm. of those things they can just happen they don't need anyone to sort of tell us what to do or mm-hmm. put more money in we can just get on with it I think at the moment the gap that is waiting to be filled is pushing that up to a much higher level of sort of political engagement if we're really talking about substantial new resources for example you know we can't create that by kind of working out better harmonisation procedures for household surveys we need to have a number of you know pretty sort of high-level politicians and people who mm-hmm. run foundations rather than just people who give out the money to decide they want it to happen and make it happen. Mm-hmm. Claire Lamid, Amanda Glassman, thanks for coming on Development Drums. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Development Drums with me, Owen Bader, and my guests today have been Amanda Glassman from the Centre for Global Development and Claire Malamed from ODI, and the producer is Theo Talbot. Thanks for listening. Thank you.